Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast of Latrobe Asia, where we discuss the news, events, and general happenings of Asia's states and societies. I'm your host, Nick Bisley, the Executive Director of Latrobe Asia. On the 14th of May 2017, 33 world leaders gathered in Beijing for what has been touted as the inaugural Belt and Road Forum for International Cooperation. Billed as the biggest diplomatic event in China this year, the summit was ostensibly about improving economic integration between East and West and providing leadership to a global economy going through difficult times. But many are skeptical about China's motives. None of America's key Asian allies attended. India is dubious, while many others are put off by the program's uncertain and nebulous qualities. So what is the Belt and Road Initiative? Can it drive globalization with what some have described as Chinese characteristics? And will it usher in a new era of Chinese global dominance? Or is it just another example of top-down misallocation of resources that will burn more goodwill than it generates? Joining us to discuss the Belt and Road Initiative is Dr. Luca Anceschi. Luca is a lecturer in Central Asian Studies at the University of Glasgow and was, prior to taking that appointment, a lecturer in international relations here at the Trobe. Welcome to the program, Luca. Good morning, Nick. So let's start with the beginning, the basics. Uh, what is the Belt and Road Initiative? Where did it come from? Um, and what is China trying to achieve with it? Well, it is probably the single most important infrastructure program at the moment on this planet. And it's essentially a range of transport infrastructure, seaports, dry docks, pipelines, which are connecting China economy with 27, 28 partners across Europe and Asia. It's essentially got two uh, strands, if you want, and one is what they call the belt. The maritime is more of a waterway, if you want, which connects Southeast Asia, Pakistan, and then onto the Persian Gulf. And then the road, which is a series of land infrastructure. And this is really railways, freeways, and pipelines. And it's collectively known as One Belt, One Road Initiative, or if you want some kind of reference to the Silk Road, which is the old way of describing how trade was done across Eurasia. China's role is essentially the cash, trying to bring the cash. And in the last 10 years or so, I mean, this is, has emerged now as a more structured effort, but it has been going on, at least to Central Asia, which is the region I work on, for the last 10 years. So we've seen infrastructure built by Chinese workers, probably from the mid 2000 onwards. So China's role is not only bankrolling this and leading a couple of investment financial institutions that support and pay for this, but also providing the workers, providing the know-how. And as we've seen the last couple of days with the summits, we're also coordinating this whole effort. Belt and Road Initiative certainly is um, a big, ambitious program, and in infrastructure terms, it, it looks pretty serious. How much money are we talking? What What are the Chinese putting on the table to back this um, grand ambition of theirs? They're talking anything in between 800 billion and 1 trillion. So it is big money. This entails everything. The materials, the actual buildings, terms of paying the wages for the workers, and inevitably, the graft and the corruption, which is but we can talk about that one later on. And it's a way to use the surplus money that they have internally. Obviously, that's an economy that has been growing for a while. Assuming that kind of continuous growth is unrealistic. So they thought that it's a good way to spend their way out of any possible crisis by investing massively. It is a significant commitment. It is also a sustained commitment. It's so coordinated that I can't think of any other 
analogous program that the other big powers, so Russia and the US, have detailed and prepared in, in terms of Eurasia. But I mean, to my mind, this transformative. I don't really buy all the lines about why it's transformative, but it is a significant commitment in, in financial terms and in real terms. So far, we've been talking mostly about the sort of infrastructure um, development, kind of the economic side of the, the Belt and Road Initiative. But for many, um, the Belt and Road is really about geopolitics, uh, so that all of that money, road building, bridge building, is a kind of sweetener, if you like, to bring um, the countries of Central Asia and Western Europe kind of into China's orbit. So where do you stand on the view that that, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative is really about geopolitics and not about economics? I actually disagree with it. I've seen the progress in Central Asia, especially Kazakhstan, going on in the last seven, eight years. And the way in which this infrastructure was built, it wasn't really done with geopolitical aims in mind, in the sense is that we've seen the emergence of soft powers, for instance, all in the last couple of years. You know, we have seen songs and the, the propaganda about the Belt and Road, but that was before were just about building the actual road, the famous Western China, Western Europe road, which is co-sponsored by the World Bank. I do not see that kind of ambition behind, mostly because the way in which they construct this infrastructure, it's very alienating for any sympathy for China. I mean, they bring their own workers in, their workers live in exclusively Chinese village, they dominate over the population, and pretty much they hate everyone else in Central Asia. And then when the road is done, they move away. So it's not really the kind of product that is buying the hearts of minor population in Eurasia. It could be different from the elite, and probably it is, because China is effectively providing those public goods that authoritarian leaders in the region are no longer able or willing or both to provide. So it may be a support for their policy, but even that, we haven't seen a clear shift towards pro-Chinese policies along the belt, the road, which is what I know better. So Kazakhstan had to be part of the Eurasian Union, Kyrgyzstan had to get into the Eurasian Union for mobility reasons, population, and then we got Tajikistan, not essentially part of, of the world, will go back to the sort of more Russia organization. My point is also based on my understanding of the region, which Central Asia, namely, that does not operate in a Cold War. So it's not that my gain is your loss. There is no zero-sum game. So there is room virtually for everyone who's willing to put up with those intractable authoritarian leaders. I think that that's where this One Belt, One Road product really places itself. Also because we got a serious problem. You have all this infrastructure that run through economies which are in crisis. And who's buying these goods? At the moment, you buy the economic ticket, not the geopolitics, but we shall see. Might come back to that in a second. Let's turn to the summit held on the 14th to 15th of May. It was a huge jamboree, 33 world leaders, including the heads of the IMF, the World Bank, the UN Secretary General, a curious assortment of heads of state of government, the Central Asian Dictators Club, of course, was there, Putin, Erdogan, but also I think the head of Ethiopia, the president of Chile, the president of Argentina, Spain, your own Italy. It's a pretty odd assortment of countries. What was your sense of the overarching purpose of the summit? I was a show off. They just to show off the fact that they have been spending so much and now they have a pretty wide network of states that are participating in this project. Uh, it is the kind of 
politics of big events, which we've seen more and more in Asia. I mean, Russia, whether the Olympics, next year the World Cup, Kazakhstan has been doing this sort of much smaller case event. And of course, it is the kind of event that, in the worldview of authoritarian leaders, actually pays up because shaking hands with all these people who are actually there to pretty much say whether we're part of your project, it brings legitimacy, it brings visibility. That summit is part of this program. What the idea of the summit actually brought to my mind, it's much more of transformation of this program. I mean, again, I have been following for a while for my own research in mostly Kazakhstan. And at the beginning, it wasn't that structured. It was just the Chinese making sure that they had an easier way to get to Europe to trade, although it's a long way away. But then it became bigger and bigger and bigger. It was not only the, the big roads, but also the provincial roads. And then Kyrgyzstan became part of that. You see that it was become a very defined and very extensive network of infrastructure. And then it became part of this sort of two-tiered highway and maritime belt. It may have been really local at the beginning, but it's now global. We not only have to think of the global consequences, as we've been doing here, I think there is a lot to be said also about the very local impact of this infrastructure development across China, but mostly across Eurasia. I come back to that because I think that sense of where this thing came from, that, that kind of origins of it, is quite interesting to pick apart a bit where in China's western peripheries and across Central Asia, it's got a longer history, but generally fairly locally driven. You then had in, I think, what was it, 2013, the speech which talk about the maritime, and then there's another speech in Indonesia where they talk about the next phase. And then there was a sense, certainly amongst China watchers, so people not like yourself who are looking at Central Asia, but people who watch China, are kind of going, ooh, there's this initiative. It's coming from Xi Jinping. It then gets packaged up and then presented as the big international initiative. And it's as if the machinery of government in, in China goes, crikey, we've got to fill this thing in. And they find in Central Asia all of these different components. And then it's all sewn together and presented as a package on the global stage over the weekend of 14, 15 May. What was your sense of how that payoff of the summit, you know, if the payoff is about legitimacy and about credibility that comes from a big spectacle? Do you think it worked in that regard? Well, I, I think it does. I think that there is an equivocal benefit for the leaders to have that kind of infrastructure in because they don't come with any sort of price. As long as you were willing to have the workers come in and build the road, you're fine. That can be a bad thing, especially in very corrupt authoritarian system where the money doesn't peculate down to the people. So I think that we will see, at least for the next couple of years, we will see these things keep just pending. And that's why the summit was important, because it was a checkpoint, a checkpoint in which they could see who was with them, although they probably already knew it, but they could do it in a way that was more structured. Hence, the old soft power bit, which I found fascinating because I always thought that that was never in their interest. Sort of, you know, it was more for domestic consumption for Eurasian consumption. I think in the next couple of weeks we'll see more of the same. I think that the problems will start to rise when there will have to be an economic rationale for the trade done through this infrastructure. I mean, connectivity is a nice word, but it's an empty word. It doesn't mean anything. What you're connecting, you're not connecting people, you're not connecting markets, you're just connecting geography. Because the demand has increased for these goods. Even though in the next couple of years, in the post-summit era, if you want, we will see more of the same. 
I think that there will be a point in which someone will start asking the question, well, now we've got the roads, what are we going to trade? Why having all of these trains? Why having all of these dry docks? You're speeding up the procedure to actually move goods over. What for? Who's buying these things? And I think that the answer is China is not ready yet to answer. Which goes back to my point before about the fact that they had so much cash internally that they had to spend it somewhere. And that was a convenient way. So again, it is a very international project, but it's also a profoundly domestic project in some sense. Of the many pieces of terrible propaganda that they put out about it, there were all these little videos on YouTube, and one of them had a little animated bottle of whiskey leaving a, a station in Britain and getting on a train and catching a 20-day train ride to somewhere in, in Zhejiang. And you get that sense that the whole thing has this build it and they will come kind of quality to it. On this very point, I did interview one of the heads of the Horgos Tour. Horgos is the border crossing between Kazakhstan and China. So if you want, it's the first step for the railway. And I was speaking with him in London on the day in which the first train was due to arrive from China. And was it a Chinese train? It was just coming from China and the Chinese government that paid for this lavish reception. And there wasn't any commercial point that he was, was just saying, for us it's important that the train gets here today, because that was the part of my job in which I was concerned with, so establishing the connection. What happens after that, it would be for the economic planners, and he couldn't really see why Britain would send goods over land to China. But another propaganda piece is that one in which there is this sort of ideal family in which the father reads the story about the belt and the road to the, to the kids before going to bed. It is the story that China wants us to tell. But what about the local people? What kind of impact are they said? When it's so big and so extensive and so significant and so lavish, if you want, there will let to be the kind of come to effect in which people start to think, well, you know, maybe things were better before or this hasn't really worked well for us. Because this is an extremely globalized initiative across economies that are not globalized at all. You inevitably bring this impact, these consequences that will have local impact. And one thing, if we're talking about the people in Kazakhstan who are making money out of the goods going in, but the other thing is if we're the people displaced for the roads, people that have lost the local markets, people that have got this pipeline brought in and they not benefit as much as they did, this is going to be the old kind of issues that will eventually emerge. And that will have to be dealt with across borders, because it's not just China that can pretty much quiet down and discontent about the three gorges down. These are going to be problems that will arise in Kazakhstan, in Belarus, which apparently is the new second hub, and the local government. So what's the view from the Central Asian republics of the Belt and Road Initiative, or and particularly the train lines and the roads that are being built? What sort of consequences has it had so far, and what's the reaction to these initiatives? Yeah, few of my students have been doing some work on the actual road. So the road which goes from Korgos down to Shinkend and then up to Russia. So it, it's pretty long. And it's supposed to connect Western China, Xinjiang, with Western Europe. People weren't really happy because of what I was saying before. So Chinese workers would come in. They would build their own Chinese-only town. No inter-ethnic relation. No money brought in the local economies. They would just stay where they were, 
building the roads and then go back to China. So people were actually not happy at all about that. The government was happy because that came at a time where they were recovering from the 2008 crisis and that allowed them to having someone else providing these public goods for them at a time at which they had serious constraints and they had to keep spending on patronage networks because they had to support their power in some way. And this is pretty much the two big tensions there. You have on the one hand the local and on the one hand the elite, and they keep going this way. But then in the last few years, we've seen the emergence of some visible beneficiaries. So you've got the most organized traders, people that are actually making money out of it. I think that for Kazakhstan especially, which is probably the states where you have the longer section of the land route, when the road will be finished, we'll have to see what the benefits are beyond Almaty. But it seems to me the local people not very happy, the emerging middle class becoming more and more positive about it, and the elite, of course, who works with them. It is different with the pipelines. The pipelines in Central Asia were part of this Belt and Road, and we've seen the two bigger ones, which is the one that connects Western Kazakhstan with China. And that's important because it put a lot of cash in for Kazakhstan. But most importantly, supported the Turkmen elite at the time of crisis, but at the same time connected them in this sort of mortal embrace with China, because now China is the only customer. So it is part of all of it. The idea that China sits at the very center, inevitably, all the roads now lead to China, if you want, especially in Eurasia. This kind of system eventually, further down the track, may bring problems in the way in which these authoritarian leaders are actually liaising with China in the terms of dependency, in the terms of how positive the relationship could actually be. It's a fascinating prospect in mind, the, the idea of a kind of new Chinese clientelistic networks, but I'm afraid that's all the time we have. Thanks for being part of the program. Thank you, Nick. Uh, you can follow Luca on Twitter. He's at Anceskistan, that's A-N-C-E-S-C-H-I-S-T-A-N, or me, at Nick Bisley. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast of the Trove Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it on iTunes or SoundCloud. And while you're there, leave a rating and a review. It helps us spread the word. Thanks for listening.